Kevin Markwick. Oakfield FM.
That's Iggy Pop. Oh, microphone. Thank you. Uh, from 1973, which is where we are this week. Uh, Penetration from the album Raw Power. Uh, it was either that to represent 1973 or tie a yellow ribbon round the old oak tree. And I think you know where my sensibilities probably lie. So, hello, it's Kevin Markwick for the next two hours. Uh, on our trawl through the cinema of the 1970s. As seen through the worm's eye view. That's such a thing. Of me, Kevin. And the cinema I grew up in, the picture house in Uckfield. So, uh, you know... Not super swanky, but doing what it does. So I was coming up to 11 years old, so the, the, the anecdotes might get a bit better, I hope. Strange things were beginning to grow down there. Garden, I mean. And uh, I went to the big school, I presume. You go when you're 11, do you? 1973? I don't remember much about it, to be honest. I have no memory of my first day of school. Uh, first day of big school, secondary school. Maybe it was too traumatic and I uh, blotted it out. It's possible. Anyway, we've got all sorts of really interesting stuff. Honestly. So I hope you can stay with me. Right, this is how we're going to get started. It's a bit weird, but stick with me. Imagine, if you will, a man dressed as a woman walking along outside Buckingham Palace. Oh, excuse me, miss. Oh, hello. I wonder if you could help me. I'm looking for the Queen's picture collection. Oh, it's along there and it's marvellous. Oh, you're interested in painting, are you? Yes. My boyfriend paints in oils. Does he really? I expect he's done you dozens of times. Pardon? In all kinds of positions. Oh, you are awful. But I like you. <laughs> oh! So this is Ooh, You Are Awful. I thought I'd start with this, with my sort of current theme of uh, dissing British cinema. In all my uh, excitement to tell you about things growing where they were not growing before, I forgot to uh, tell you that the UK entered the EEC. In 1973, Edward Heath was Prime Minister. Pink Floyd released The Dark Side of the Moon. VAT came into effect. Yeah, thanks for that. And the Austin Allegro was launched. Whoop. Liverpool won the league. Uh, last of the summer wine started. I think it's still going, isn't it? And Pizza Hut opened their first restaurant in the UK. In Islington, of all places. Whatever. So this is Ooh, You Are Awful. Dick Emery was a popular TV star on British TV in the early 70s, whose comedy consisted of sketches based around questionable sexual or cultural stereotypes. And so inevitably, because this was the 70s and British cinema, he got a feature film. It was called Ooh, You Are Awful, and its famous catchphrase uh, was... Ooh, his famous catchphrase was, Ooh, You Are Awful. I don't think he was Northern. Played on February the 4th for seven days, 1,002 admissions. I mean, really, guys, come on. Uh, 420 of them on Saturday, £324.25. 
but you know what? 73 wasn't the worst year for low-grade comedy or even lower-grade softcore porn. Oh, no. That was to come up your pipe in the next few years. Misses. And I'll explain why in the upcoming shows. This year's role of dishonour for dodgy, cheap British comedy outside the carry-ons included uh, drag artist Danny LaRue in the wartime comedy Armist Fred, The House in Nightmare Park... Um, with lots of raised eyebrow misses from Frankie Howard, although it was an improvement on the tosh light up the chastity belt that he'd made uh, in the previous years. And the oddly limp No Sex Please We're British, a comedy that seemed to be about how crushingly embarrassed we are about actual sex. So, admissions in the UK were 156 million in 1972, down from 176 million in 1971. And... I'll tell you what 73 was in a minute. And uh, it was less. <laughs> I've written the wrong numbers down. Oh, man, it's been a bit stressy. Uh, and it was only going to get worse. That's the thing. It, it, it plummets after 71, 72, 73. I think we're actually um, up to about this. We're, we're currently back to 73 levels at the moment in the UK. Uh, and it's going to get a whole bunch worse. Anyway, on a brighter note, people still love Alistair McLean-based entertainment. Uh, Revenge Thriller Fear is the Key was a British film, actually. It starred American Barry Newman and uh, Susie Kendall. It was a revenge thriller, and I can't find it anywhere. Uh, Really tried to watch it over the weekend, uh, because I've never seen it. Uh, I remember the poster clearly in the foyer. It was kind of red and had him bursting out of the middle of it. Uh, What I could find, though, was the score, uh, with uh, some wonderful 70s bombast uh, composed by Roy Budd.
Roy Budd score for Fear is the Key. Apparently, God, they loved him, didn't they? Old fancy pants, Alistair McLean in the 70s. <sighs> anyway, another one of those wonking great road shows uh, that came to Uckfield a million years later now. Uh, Young Winston had its UK premiere in 1972, and then a whole nine months later it played. 13 days, April the 30th, 1973. Uh, it took good money. 1,219 admissions for the first six days. Saturday was busy, 438 people. Remember, it was two hours and 37 minutes long. It was a bit of a bore, actually, if I'm honest. Uh, 1,277 admissions the second week. It was directed by Sir Richard Attenborough. A uh, handsomely mounted telling of the daring exploits of young Winston Churchill. Uh, that, in truth, was a bit of a hagiography, actually. Uh, it also starred Anthony Hopkins, Robert Shaw and Bancroft. And the very British score, uh, very British-sounding score, was by Alfred Ralston. Soundtrack from Young Winston by Alfred Ralston. Dickie's second film, I believe, after uh, Oh, What a Lovely War, which is actually a better film than that one. Now, I'm already running late. <laughs> I think it's going to be a bit of a job keeping this one on time. Anyway, I've got to do one of these. Now's the time for ice cream. Now, now, now. Now's the time for ice cream. Now, now, now. Cool, cool ice cream. Now's the time for ice cream. Have some now. OK, here we are. It's 1973 already. <gasps> Doesn't time fly. Kevin Markwick here, taking you through the 1970s week by week for 13 weeks. Work that one out. I haven't yet. 
Uh, I was going to tell you what the emissions were in 1973. They were 134 million down from 156 in 72. It wasn't looking good, was it? But we hung on by our fingernails. Anyway, so uh, we heard a bit of Young Winston before that. And as usual, my dad wasn't going to play a film for 14 days. Oh, no. Now, you remember we talked about this the last couple of weeks. Um, at least not yet. Anyway, uh, the Sunday one day at the start of Young Winston's two-week run was a double feature of Daleks Invasion Earth and the Bells of St Trinian's. Uh, presumably because it was the end of the Easter holidays. Uh, it wasn't horror or bikes or whatever. Uh, we'll dip into these great double features from time to time. Uh, Bells of St Trinian's was so old by then. <laughs> 1954 it was made. In fact, it was the first St Trinian's film. And uh, Dalek's Invasion Earth was made in 1966 and was the second of Peter Cushing's two outings as Doctor Who for the big screen. Man, I love those films. They were quite low budget, but seeing the Daleks on the big screen in colour and cinemascope, uh, or actually more accurately, the cheap two-perf scope knockoff techniscope, um, it was just great. Uh, it did well for that one-day book in 249 admissions, £69.77. Let's have a bit of groovy uh, music. <laughs> Wonderful score by Barry Gray, he of Thunderbirds, uh, for the Daleks Invasion Earth. I played that, even though it was made in 1960, whatever it was, because <laughs> it reminds me of being 11, which is what I was in 1973. Anyway, the 70s was the heyday of the big-budget, multi-star disaster movie. Airport started the trend in 1970, uh, but one of the absolute best, and I'm biased here because I love big disaster movies, was The Poseidon Adventure. Hell upside down, declared the poster. It was really classy, honestly. Producer of Master, uh, produced by Master of Disaster Erwin Allen, 
who'd also uh, had great success on American TV with shows like Lost in Space and Time Tunnel. Uh, it was directed by the great British producer and director Ronald Neem. Slightly odd job for him, really. Hmm. Uh, he did a good job, though. I'm sure you know it's the story of a group of people trying to escape a cruise liner that's been completely turned upside down by a massive storm wave. Um, the sets, the amazing sets, were accurate copies of the Queen Mary and were quite spectacular, including the giant dining room set, which actually rotated uh, to make the scenes as authentic as possible. They would rotate it, rotate the entire set this way and the camera the other way to give them more sort of... I'm going to try and say this word now, vertiginous. Is that the word? I think it's right. Anyway, uh, it was totally convincing, at least in my 11-year-old eyes. Um, I do watch it still, actually, from time to time. The family have to put up with the odd uh, 70s disaster movie now and again. Uh, what elevates it, though, is the quality of the performances. It features no less than five Academy Award winners. Gene Hackman, Ernest Borgnine, Jack Orbitson, Shelley Winters and Red Buttons. That's a whole bunch of Oscar glory right there. Um, it had a March 1973 general release, and we played it uh, on July the 1st for seven days, but it took no money. 597 admissions in seven days. Was it hot? I think it must have been, because I noticed it played again for five days in January 1974 and uh, managed 719 admissions, a big improvement. So, uh, And ten months after the first booking. I mean, that wouldn't happen today, would it? No. Anyway, uh, Poseidon Adventure Music by uh, not the first time, uh, not the last time we're going to hear from John Williams tonight. John Williams, uh, opening title music for from the Poseidon Adventure, 
which had everything in it. That one, I mean, even had Leslie Nielsen doing a serious role, which is actually, I think he was in a few of those, and he would obviously uh, lampoon that later on in the 70s uh, in Airplane. Um, he was the captain, wasn't he, with the binoculars going, my goodness, look at that giant thing coming towards us. Uh Okay, you're listening to Kevin Markwick. It's 1973 already. Um, and on my trawl through the cinema of the 1970s over the next few weeks. Uh, I hope you've been enjoying it. If you are, please let me know. Um, you can hit me up on Twitter at Kevin Markwick. Let me know what uh, you think. Did you go to the cinema in the 70s? Did you go to my cinema, our cinema in the 1970s? Where did you go? What did you see? Uh, and what memories do you have? Because it was a funny old decade, wasn't it? Um, uh, you can email me at the studio, uh, studio at uh, studio at uk, Or actually, there's, I haven't mentioned it for a few weeks. There's the cami thing. <laughs> you can go and sort of look at the back of my head. And, and leave a message. It's not really, uh, not really pleasant for you, admittedly. And if you're uh, listening to the podcast, which I know um, increasing numbers are, thank you very much for downloading. Don't forget to share and to uh, maybe give us a few stars somewhere so we can get it out to more people. Um, and uh, do let me know. Get, get in contact uh, on Twitter or whatever, uh, and I'd like to hear what you think as well. So... Onward and Upward, one of the most underrated film composers, I always think, is uh, Richard Rodney Bennett. Uh, his scores are always so evocative. Have a listen, actually, to the uh, lovely score for Enchanted April that he did in 1992. And uh, actually, his score from um, for Far From the Madding Crowd in 1967 is one of my absolute favourites. Beautiful, beautiful score. Uh, he wrote the score for what now seems a rather forgotten film directed by... It's, it's interesting because it was directed by screenwriter Robert Bolt, uh, who was, of course, the screenwriter for uh, David Lean. He wrote Lawrence and Bridge on the River Kwai and uh, Chivago. Um, and uh, Ryan's Daughter. Uh, it actually featured Bolt's then-wife, Sarah Miles, who, um, who was Ryan's daughter, of course. Uh, it was actually the only time... Um, uh, Bolt would direct a film, um, probably because this one was a bit of a flop. Uh, but Sarah Miles played the titular Caroline Lamb, lover of Lord Byron, played by Richard Chamberlain, and wife of Viscount Melbourne. Uh, it features a great cameo, actually, uh, from uh, Laurence Olivier as the Duke of Wellington. I do remember seeing it, and this is a bit weird, I saw it at the Ritz Cinema in Seaford. <laughs> Because we we uh, we were actually running that one at the time, and I I uh, I sat through it on a Saturday afternoon when we were down there. It played for seven days. It was released in November '72. We played it uh, on July the eighth, nineteen seventy-three. Not great business. Six hundred and six admissions. And embarrassingly, we did better the following week with the uh, rather insipid, um, you know, uh, waltz thing. The great waltz. The sort of bizarre biopic of uh, Strauss <laughs> anyway uh, the, the whole point was this is some rather wonderful music by Richard Rodney Bennett for Lady Caroline Lamb
Very nice. Uh, Richard Rodney Bennett's score for Lady Caroline Lamb. We'll come across him a few times in the next few weeks. Murder on the Orange Express, that's a good one. Um, others, whose name escapes me right now. Um, OK, so we'll take a break now. And when we come back, uh, I'll just play something from 1973 because it's my show and I can do what I like. Get with it, young man, get in the swing All the ice cream is that cool zing So make the evening a regular ball Get the refreshment that's got it all Cool man, like ice cream Get yours now Sweat of lovers, 
That doesn't get old, does it? That was The Who, Love Rain Over Me, from Quadrophenia, released in 1973. I thought I'd just chuck that one in. Now, you're listening to Kevin Markwick. It's uh, a Monday night, just coming up to sort of 7.42. I did a time check. I never do time checks. It'll probably be the last one. Anyway, I hope you have your uh, Ronco patented toe uncurler at the ready. Uh, Lost Horizon was not a critical success at the time of the release, nor has its reputation improved since. Uh, It was selected for inclusion in the book uh, The 50 Worst Films of All Time, co-written by uh, critic Michael Medved, and is described by the Razzie founder, John Wilson, as one of the 100 most enjoyably bad movies ever made. Okay. Uh, The film was also a box office bomb, losing an estimated $51 million. So what's going on here then? Why would we play such a film? Because, dear listener, sometimes booking a cinema is about picking the least worst film available. Uh, Released in March 1973, and actually it could have been worse, uh, which is the other thing. You never really know. So Lost Horizon played October the 1st for six days, 733 admissions. Uh, It was a musical version of the 1937 Capra film, which was based on a book about a bunch of white folk whose plane crashes in the Himalayas and they're rescued by the inhabitants of Shangri-La, a hidden city where everything is perfect and no one ever grows old. You know, like Uckfield. The original version uh, had almost bankrupted Columbia back in 36. So what they were thinking trying it again, who knows? What this film needs is songs. Uh, This was a confusing time for the Hollywood old guard. The obscene amount of money, expensive roadshow musicals like West Side Story and The Sound of Music had made them in the 60s dried up. And despite their attempts, uh, they couldn't make it happen again. Paint Your Wagon, Dr. Doolittle, they'd all been massive flops. But they kept on trying. They kept on trying to force them down our throat. And Lost Horizon was one of these. One of Europe's great actors and muses, Ingmar... Sorry, one of Europe's great actors and a muse of Ingmar Bergman, Liv Ullmann, of all people, was talked into appearing. Now, are you ready for this? Here she is singing probably the only song that you've actually heard from the film. And this is our school. This is where we start to prepare our young for the future. small at all and just the way a tiny branch is like a tree to a twig to someone else you are
partially wrong To someone else you are strong Admit it, you're singing along. <laughs> uh, from the Lost, Hori Lost Horizon, um, one of the big, big flops of 1973, that kind of did okay in Uckfield. You see, you just don't know, that's the thing. Because if we did know, we'd be stinking, blinking rich by now. A much bigger financial success in the movie realm in 73 was Norman Jewison's much hipper film version of Rice and Weber's monster stage hit rock opera, Jesus Christ Superstar. Jesus Christ Superstar. I've never said it like that before in my life. Jesus Christ Superstar. Jesus Christ Superstar. Uh, using stunning desert locations in Israel, brilliantly photographed by the great Dougie Slocum, it features uh, many of the actors who'd been in the Broadway production, including Carl Anderson as Judas. Now, at last, all too well, I can see where we all soon will be. If you strip away the myth from the man, you will see where we all soon will be. started to believe the things they say of you you really do believe this talk of god is true and all the good you've done will soon get swept away you've begun to matter more than the things you say 
listen, Jesus, I don't like what I see. All I ask is that you listen to me. And remember, I've been your right-hand man all along. You have set them all on fire. They think they found the new Messiah. And they'll hurt you when they find they're wrong. I remember when this whole thing began. No talk of God, then we called you a man. And believe me, my admiration for you hasn't died. But every word you say today gets twisted round some other way. And they'll hurt you if they think you've lied. Nazareth, your famous son, should have stayed a great unknown Like his father carving wood, he'd have made good Tables, chairs, and oaken chests would have suited Jesus best He'd have caused nobody harm, no one alarm Listen, Jesus, do you care for your race? Don't you see we must keep in our place? We are occupied, have you forgotten how put down we are? I am frightened by the crowd For we are getting much too loud And they'll crush us if we go too far If we go Jesus to the warning I give Please remember that I want us to live But it's sad to see our chances Weakening with every year Your followers are blind Too much heaven on their minds It was beautiful but now it's sour Yes it's all
Joe Simon. And the theme from Cleopatra Jones, uh, a 1973 black exploitation classic featuring Tamara Dobson. Uh, she was described as the soul sister's answer to James Bond on the trailer. Uh, she plays special agent Cleopatra Jones. It was kind of um, silly and played mostly for laughs, but it had villains and fighting and guns and and a rather scenery-chewing Shelley Winters in a very odd performance. Uh, it was successful enough to beget a sequel, Cleopatra Jones and the Casino of Gold in 1975. So, anyway, talk of black exploitation and James Bond lead... <laughs> If I was anyway good at this, leads us. Uh, you're Kev. You're no really. Um, leads us nicely into this. When you were young and your heart was an open book, you used to say, "Live and let live." You know you did. You know you did. You know you did. But if this ever-changing world. We're living makes you give in and cry. Say, live and let die. James Bond. You know, we're big fans of James Bond on this show. 
And when I say we, I mean me. Because <laughs> it's just me here. Uh, we've covered Bond quite a lot over the last... Well, I've been doing this sort of on and off about five or six years now. Uh, one of the first seasons, actually, we had a fantastic series about Bond. It was Bond at 50, and Cheney Kent came in and did... Uh, I think we did two Bonds a week, didn't we? I was trying to dig out the Live and Let Die one, but I couldn't find it, uh, annoyingly. Anyway, that was good. I enjoyed that. Um, Live and Let Die, written in 1954, was the uh, second Bond novel. Uh, Eon really needed to keep the series afloat after the departure of Connery. And they were nervous about Roger Moore because they'd lost money on a film uh, called Crossplot, the studio, that is, that he'd starred in for them, um, the United Artists. Anyway, inevitably, uh, they tried to back another um, articulated lorry uh, full of money up Connery's back uh, passage. No, we're not concentrating on the FNAFs this week. Uh, but he was off making other films because uh, he'd uh, managed to get himself a two-picture deal at United Artists by signing on for Diamonds Are Forever. They said, you know, you can go and off and... If you sign on for Diamonds, we'll let you make these two films, which have mostly disappeared, actually. I think one was called The Offence, was it? And one was called The Anderson Tapes, neither of which uh, I don't think are particularly memorable. Tell me if I'm wrong. Um... Anyway, uh, eventually they capitulated and let Broccoli and Swartzman sign Roger Moore, who, of course, had been a telly star in The Saint and things like that. Um, uh, and for some of you, I know, this ushers in a golden age of Bond. And for others, it ushers in a golden age of unnecessary amounts of smirking. Uh, also, Live and Let Die was the reason the Persuaders never got a second series, you know? Because Roger Moore was so determined to play Bond, he turned it down because he'd heard Connery wasn't going to do it again, even though the part wasn't yet his. So, you know, it's not all good news. I still love The Persuaders with Tony Curtis. Remember that one? Maybe you do. Maybe you don't. Obviously, the producers were mindful of how successful black exploitation cinema was at the time and played up that angle in Live and Let Die. Uh, Bond films would do this quite often during the Moore era. Kung Fu films turned up in Man with a Golden Gun. Uh, spaceships turned up in the ultra-lame Moonraker. Uh, a desperate attempt to ride along on the coattails of Star Wars. So, we have a plot involving a black villain and uh, voodoo. Uh, Yapet Koto plays the villain Dr. Kananga. Uh, or Mr. Big. I think they're smuggling heroin, aren't they, or something? can't remember. I saw it not long ago. I went through them all, one by one, um, a couple of years ago. The story uh, of the title song actually is quite interesting. Uh, it's that McCartney sent the, the song on spec to the producers. Uh, he'd wanted to be involved with Bond for a while and just sent this song along. Can you imagine opening that? Oh, here's a song from Paul McCartney for you. Uh, incredibly... <laughs> They balked a bit at first, but because John Barry was unavailable, I think he was doing, um, apparently he was doing Billy Liar in the West End at the time, um, they agreed to take the song on. Now, I love the story of uh, the Beatles producer um, thingy, George Martin, uh, discussing the song with Harry Saltzman, who was trying to figure out who should sing it on the film soundtrack. Uh, Saltzman says, who should we get to sing the song? And Martin says, well, you do have um, Paul McCartney. Oh, what about Thelma Houston? She's very good. Uh, yeah, she's very good, but you do have Paul McCartney. What about Aretha Franklin? <laughs> and apparently this goes on for some time until George Martin has to diplomatically remind him that they don't get the song unless McCartney sings it. 
all of which meant that because the song was so expensive, you know, he wasn't going to give it away for nothing. He's one of the Beatles, for goodness sake. Um, there was no money left over for a top-draw film composer. And actually, I don't think it would have done the job anyway because um, the big kind of lucrative bit is the song, isn't it? You're not going to... Um, you're not going to do the score unless you get the song as well. Anyway, so what happened was they gave the composing of the incidental music to George Martin, uh, the Beatles producer. It wasn't the most memorable Bond score, if we're, often, if we're honest, but it does serve its purpose. Here's a cue.
that's part of George Martin's score for Live and Let Die. It's okay, does its sort of business, doesn't it? But um, it doesn't quite have the swagger and joie de vivre, joie de vivre, of John Barry's score. John Barry will return, actually, for the next one, Man with the Golden Gun, uh, fortunately. Um, but one of the great things about writing a Bond score, of course, is that you can always um, fall back on that Bond theme. Um so, Living That Die was also a bit of a watershed in Uckfield, actually. Uh, with the cinemas in Lewis and Crowborough now gone, we were getting films quicker. Living That Die premiered in London in July and would have played four weeks exclusively at the Odeon Leicester Square and then rolled out to key cities after that. Living That Die played 14 days. Yes, 14 days. Hooray! From Sunday, the, October the 14th, 1973 and did great business, 1,824 admissions week one and 1,565 admissions week two. Uh, the first Saturday actually had 590 admissions, which meant it must have filled twice. Whoop! Anyway, um, as I was saying, that George Martin and any Bond composer, the one thing he can fall back on is that Bond theme, and each, um, and each one of them sort of, each composer gets a good old go at it. And uh, actually, he doesn't make a bad fist of it. This is the James Bond theme from the Live and Let Die soundtrack. George Martin's take on the James Bond theme from Live and Let Die, which uh, we had a whole cycle in 1973, the release, and it actually played in Uckfield. Um, I do just about remember seeing it, I think, but I may not. <laughs> I was 11. No, I must have seen it. I just don't remember exactly where and when, and I used to be able to remember every single film and where I saw it. Age has withered me already, uh, in more ways than one, matron. Um, so, yes, yeah, so obviously uh, we'll be covering the next one, Man with the Golden Gun, uh, which is uh, actually had a London premiere in 74, but obviously I seem to remember it was... Um, 
I'm doing this off the top of my head. Uh, I seem to remember it was Easter 75, so that one I do remember seeing, and it was an Easter release. I may get home, look at the book, and prove to be an idiot. I usually am, but that's my memory of it anyway. Um, so uh, just before the break then, uh, my timings are going all a bit up the old wall here. Um, I'd like to play you a track from Oh Lucky Man, uh, which was Lindsay Anderson's follow-up to If, the extraordinary If, which had been a very big film in Upfield, uh, I believe 1969, uh, a sort of satire on public school um, with Malcolm McDowell. Had the very famous scene in it where they, um, you can hear him running along like that, and whack, they get caned. And at the end he says, thank you, Roundtree. Because um, Lindsay Anderson had had to put up with all that stuff at public schools, and it was a very savage kind of indictment of that. And uh, one of the great British films of the uh, uh, new wave of directors. And so it actually turned into a trilogy. There was a third one after Oh Lucky Man called Britannia Hospital, which wasn't very good, and it sort of tanked horribly. But Oh Lucky Man is a marvelous piece of work. Um, features the further adventures of Mick Travis played again by Malcolm McDowell and it's freewheeling and bonkers uh, it's a freewheeling bonkers bit of British cinema uh, highly ambitious, uh, probably overburdened with ideas, it runs over three hours long and is quite something to behold it's got a whole raft of British actors in it, uh, some questionable blacking up by Arthur Lowe um, nev never fully understood what that scene means perhaps Lindsay could tell us, but he's no longer with us um, I love the story about If, actually, that they were... Because um, there's a black and white sequences in it. And critics were desperately trying to work out the meaning of the black and white sequences in If. And it turned out they'd just run out of money, so they could only afford black and white stock. But Oh Lucky Man, it's one of those films, it will stick with you. If you give it a go, it'll stick with you. It's quite extraordinary. Uh, no one came to see it, though. It played for five days on November the 20th and had a total of 212 admissions. I mention it because I love the soundtrack. Uh, Alan Price did all the songs. There's a lot of songs on the soundtrack that you'd recognise. And they keep cutting back to Alan Price playing the songs. Um, probably the most famous one is the one they used in the Volkswagen ad. You remember about everybody going through changes and all that. But I'm going to play you um, Poor People, which is a good one. to make whatever he wants and take it with his own hands poor people stay poor people and they never get to see someone's got to win in the human race if it isn't you then it has to be me so smile while you're making it laugh while you're taking it even though you're faking it, nobody's gonna know. Nobody's gonna know. No use mumbling, it's no use grumbling. Life just isn't fair. There's no easy days, there's no easy ways. Just get out there and do it and sing and a sing. Strangle on and nobody 
nobody's gonna know Nobody's gonna know And nobody's gonna know Heartache. Uh, Diana Ross as Billie Holiday in Lady Sings the Blues. Um, actually, James points out on Twitter those two um, pictures I mentioned that Connery made, Anderson Tapes and The Offence, were both Sidney Lumet. Of course, I yes, of course they were. Um, I don't think they're yeah, like he's like uh, like you point out, they're not uh, vintage Lumet. No, sir. And I don't think I don't recall actually having seen them. Again, I remember the posters being up. This is like, it's like an awakening, this show. Over the next few years, uh, next few weeks, years, no, sorry, I wouldn't do that to you. Over the next few weeks, I will become more and more sentient <laughs> as I remember things. Uh, yes, some of them you probably won't want to hear on the radio. Um, 
So yes, Diana Ross as Billie Holiday in Lady Sings the Blues, a generally uh, actually well-regarded biopic. I'm not sure she got nominated for Oscars, did she? Oh, I should have looked that one up. I don't think she did. Uh, it played five days, November the 27th, after having been released in April. Uh, 298 missions, not great. Uh, the Sunday Monday, actually, was um, Shaft's Big Score and Evil Knievel. That's an interesting coupling right there. Evil Knievel was... Um, Shaft's Big Score was obviously a follow-up to Shaft. Um, Evil Knievel was a biopic of the stuntman, uh, Evil Knievel. <laughs> Does anybody remember him? He used to jump over buses and, like, break his legs off and things. Uh, in fact, he starred in his own film some later later in the 70s called Viva Knievel. <gasps> God, blimey. It took money, but it was a terrible film. <laughs> anyway, um, George Hamilton played Evil Knievel. Can you imagine? George Hamilton, you know, the guy, the sort of very permatanned guy um, who was uh, brilliant in um, Love at First Bite. With you, never a quickie, always a longie. <laughs> As Dracula, of course, as I'm sure you could tell from that. Uh, anyway, you, you know, you can't say you don't get a bit of everything at the cinema in Upfield in those days. I mean, we really did. Um, the following week was really weird. Now, bear with me on this one. I think we must have been scratching around. Uh, remember, it's uh, remember sometimes it's about playing the least worst when you're running a cinema. Although, uh, Sunday, Monday, Red Sun and Seamus... Now, Red Sun was a 1971 French-Italian-Spanish-Western directed by Bond alumnus, actually. Uh, Terence Young, who directed the first Bond film, Doctor No, and starred Charles Bronson, Ursula Andress, Alain Delon and Toshiro Mifuni. I mean, really, a Western with samurais in it, basically. Uh, I've never seen it, but again, I do remember the quad being rather gorgeous. In fact, I think I had it on my bedroom wall for a while. Uh, Seamus was a 1973 private dick comedy with Burt Reynolds. 159 people Sunday, 25 on Monday, you see. Some things never change. Uh, that was the high point of the week, actually. <laughs> uh, Tuesday and Wednesday was a very strange double bill. Portnoy's Complaint, uh, an indifferent film version of Philip Roth's novel uh, with, um, oh, what's his name, Benjamin, not private. <laughs> Richard, Richard Benjamin. He was good. I like Richard Benjamin. He was good in The Sunshine Boys. And um, he directed one of my absolute favourites, a picture called My Favourite Year, which you've never seen. We might come round to that. Will we come round to that one? Or was that the 80s? No, that was the 80s. With Peter O'Toole. Anyway, we're not doing the 80s. We're doing the 70s. Um, uh, yeah, so Portnoy's Complaint, uh, based on the Philip Roth novel, and Performance. I, what? Uh, Nick Rogue's seminal 1970 film. We talked about that when we lived back in 1970, if you remember. 42 people Tuesday, 31 Wednesday. Remember, this is in a one-screen cinema. We'll come on to that when we get to about 1977, uh, about what went on there. So, um, once nightly, 31 people. Not great, is it? But performance as a double feature with Portnoy's complaint. I don't know what he was thinking. Uh, then to finish for three days, uh, the Ryan O'Neill comedy The Thief Who Came to Dinner and Cactus Flower, mm -hmm. uh, which was already dated, uh, an already dated 1969 comedy with Walter Matthau and Ingrid Bergman. Uh, 112 people came in over three days. So, 
You know, programming a not-quite-first-run provincial cinema was a different kettle of fish in those days. Uh, you know, playing old films. On the upside, you could play older films um, because there wasn't so much home video and films took a long time. It was three years, I believe, the rule uh, to come onto TV at the time. Uh, and it still is, isn't it? Broadcast TV, three years. Or what they call... Yeah, anyway. Um... But, you know, of course, if you made a programming mistake in a single screen, that was your whole week down the tubes. Now, I was going to play you some of the music from Red Sun, because I'd quite like to see that. I don't know about you. I'm going to try and find it. I mean, Cowboys, Samurais, Alain Delon, a score by Maurice Jar. Who wouldn't? But um, I've got the track with me on MP3, and it just will not import into the system. So I'm sorry. I've kind of let you down there. Uh, so I'm looking at my timings now, and I'm, mar I'm miles out anyway, because I've yad yammered on too much. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to play you this, actually. Let's, do, let's have some music, because this is supposed to be a music, <laughs> music programme. Uh, this is lovely.
if you believed in me. Paper Moon. Oh, good, isn't it? Um, Paul Whiteman uh, with vocals by Peggy Healy. Now, um, I'm just going to do a couple of films either side of the news. Uh, I mean, yeah, yep, uh, three in total out of the five more. I think we've got just about time to cover. Um, that never played Upfield for whatever reason. Um, and one of the best, actually, was uh, our old friend Peter Bogdanovich's Paper Moon. Why it never played Upfield? I don't know. It's been lost in the mists of time. Uh, maybe uh, my dad was out with Paramount at the time. Uh, this could actually, seriously, could happen from time to time. Uh, maybe because he wouldn't play the Godfather for four weeks. I have no idea. Uh, he always had this theory that you had to be out with someone because you couldn't play everything, which is a bit bizarre. Um, and it was a time when distributors took themselves a little less seriously, actually. So you could kind of fall out and then get back together and, you know, and that kind of thing. Uh, not all of them, of course. Um, the lack of legal protection at the time gave rise to all sorts of chicanery on behalf of the renters, which is, is getting a bit um, a bit hardcore. I won't bore you with all that. But Paper Moon featured an Oscar-winning performance from the eight-year-old Tatum Neal and a wonderful turn from the very blousy Madeleine Kahn, who deb debuted... Debuted? Debuted. I don't know, I can't say it. Let's call the whole thing off. In Bogdanovich's previous film, What's Up, Doc? So I've got to take a break now because I'm oh, miles out. <laughs> and when we come back, something equally delicious. It's new! Ting-a-ling-a-ling, -a -ling, ice pole. Liars made ice pole. Top, top, ice pole. Squeeze up, ice pole. Ting-a-ling-a-ling, -a -ling, ice pole. Taste it! Ting-a-ling-a-ling, -a -ling, ice pole. Fresh, cool ice pole. Orange flavour. Strawberry flavour. Ting-a-ling-a-ling, -a -ling, ice pole. Why, ice pole. Serpents! Get an ice pole now. Ting-a-ling-a-ling, -a -ling, ice pole.
wonderful is that? Seriously, isn't cinema the greatest thing ever invented? Really? Uh, that's uh, from uh, Nino, Ro Nino Rota's main theme for uh, another absolute classic that never played upfield, um, Fellini's Amacord, which if you've never seen it, you absolutely have to go and buy it and watch it now. I've got the Blu-ray, actually, if you want to borrow it. Uh, it's a remarkable film about a year in the life of a small Italian coastal town in the 1930s uh, under the fascists. It has uh, all sorts of uh, dark undertones as well as just the joy of life, really. Uh, it's a delight with Fellini operating at the peak of his powers. Uh, I'd have to say, honestly, it's my that and Ivitaloni are my two favourite Fellinis. For what it's worth. Anyway, never played upfield. Well, you know, Italian cinema... Probably wouldn't have been big box office at the time. Anyway, back to American cinema now. And two 70s classics, both released in 73, one of which would play a lot over the next few years for one-day bookings, and one that's become an acknowledged classic but never played. Um, at least I think it's a classic. It's a classic in our book, you know. Um, the Friends of Eddie Coyle. Uh, it never had a booking in Upfield. I can't find one. I can't see one. Uh, it's a wonderfully gritty horrible, <laughs> depressing, grey, green crime thriller starring Robert Mitchum at his most hangdog. Um, the irony of the title is, of course, that ultimately ageing petty criminal Eddie has no friends. Um, Middle-aged, going nowhere Eddie is trying to stave off a prison sentence for armed robbery by turning informant. Uh, it's definitely one of the bleakest films of the period. Uh, it was directed by um, Peter Yates, uh, who you look back through his um, filmography, he made some great films, but he was a slightly sort of jobbing director, wasn't he, really? He made Bullet, and he went on to make the wonderful um, cycling one. <laughs> what was that called? Breaking Away. Um, and this one is just kind of inky black and brilliant. Um, you know, I know not everyone goes to cinema for this sort of stuff, but again, if you've any interest in 70s cinema, you should definitely seek it out. Um, and the score was great. Uh, Dave Grusin, the great Dave Grusin. Hey, put your hand in the drawer. And somebody kicks the drawer shut. Hurt like a bastard. Thank you. 
I've got to break in there, unfortunately. Dave Grusin's score for the Friends of Eddie Coyle. <laughs> it's a great 70s style score, isn't it? Uh, the second of the tough crime thrillers here, then, is Electrogliding Blue. Now, this uh, this would be playing one day's here and there for a good few years. Uh, it didn't actually play in 1973, although it was uh, made in 1973. I saw it in the cinema, probably not as early as 73, but because we played it so often, I did see it. And um, I remember the opening scenes really vividly. It starts with a scratchy record playing in a dingy, sweaty hut. Uh, and all we can see is sort of limbs, you know, fingers and toes and things as a man attaches the trigger of a shotgun to his toe with a piece of string and then blows his brains out. <laughs> uh, and then follows the incredibly sort of uh, kind of oddly fetishistic credit sequence as motorcycle cop Robert Blake puts on his leather and guns and his, you know his belts and his all creaky leather and then mounts his gleaming Harley Davidson electric glide muscle bike electroglide muscle bike uh, it was really popular with the petrol heads um, it's a tale of a doomed traffic cop who blows his chance at being a homicide detective although uh, it was somewhat less depressing than Eddie Coyle um, not least because of the wide-open Arizona landscapes shot by the legendary Conrad Hall. And the score actually was by the director as well. He was uh, one of doing that. <laughs> and I'm not sure he did any other scores or how many other films he directed. I'll look that up. His name is James William uh, Guercio. There you go. Always going to trip up on that.
Well, very good. It's all coming back to me now. Uh, the director, he didn't really direct... He was a music producer. This was a passion project of his, I remember now, because we've covered this one before on the show. Um, Time magazine called Electrogliding Blue a neglected cult classic that could only have come or have been made in the early 1970s. They said that in 2012. Um, I managed to get hold of the Blu-ray and watched it not too long ago. Yeah, it kind of holds up. And the last shot, if you've never seen it, I won't give it away, really has uh, sort of oddly avant-garde for a film of that type. Anyway, um, how am I doing for time? Not too bad. Uh, I think uh, here's another 1973 classic that never played in Uckfield. Uh, Robert Altman's take on the character of private detective Philip Marlowe. Uh, Altman set the film in the modern-day freewheeling kind of, you know, pot-smoking... <laughs> No clothes wearing uh, Los Angeles. I think his neighbours were a bit fruity, weren't they? Um, and the cat kept going missing. Was it his cat? Yeah. Um, and Elliot Gould brings a sort of louche and winning dimension to the part of Marlowe. Critics and audiences hated it. Uh, and it was actually withdrawn quite quickly, uh, given a different campaign and sent, sent off into the world again, but to no avail. Uh, the film lost money and kind of disappeared for a while. It's only in later years its reputation began to grow and it's actually now ranked, I think, among Altman's best. Some may disagree with me on that one. Um, it was a major influence, actually, on P.T. Anderson when he made The Insufferable Inherent Vice in 2014. He kind of missed the point, I think, of what Altman was trying to do. Uh, anyway, updating Marlowe had actually been done before in a much more box office friendly mainstream way in 1969 uh, with James Garner in the titular role. Uh, probably that film's mostly remembered for the uh, American movie debut of Bruce Lee. Uh, he comes in and chops up an office, doesn't he? If you've not seen it, if you've seen it. Anyway, Altman's film also had a rather cool jazz score uh, by none other than uh, John Williams and he was aided by uh, Johnny Mercer. Every day when some passerby invites your eye to come her way, even as she smiles a quick hello, you let her go, you let the moment fly. Too late, you turn your head, you know you said the long goodbye. Can you recognize the theme On some other street Two people meet As in a dream Running for a plane through the rain If the heart is quicker than the eye They could be lovers Until they die When a missed hello becomes a long hello. 
recognize the thing on some other street. Two people meet as in a dream, running for a plane through the rain. If the heart is quicker than the eye, they could be lovers until they To try when a miss hello becomes a long goodbye. Don't you try to be nice to me now. I'm leaving and it's goodbye. I ain't running after you in the rain when you're catching a plane. No more goodbye, goodbye, goodbye. I'm through, I'm through this time and I mean it. In fact, I don't know if I ever even did like you, except for your body. Your body was good. Well, this let's say so long. Ladies and gentlemen, did you know that Suncrush, your favorite orange drink, is in this cinema now? It's in a lovely container you can see through, so you know when it's time to buy some more. Ha ha! Suncrush is on sale now. Kevin Markwick. He's not gone. That's the whole point. He's never gone. So that's it, I'm afraid. It's all over. Bar the shouting, as they say. I don't know where that voice has come from. How long have we got? A couple of minutes. I was going to play the whole of this. One of my favourite Rolling Stones tracks from 1973, Goat's Head Soup. It's called Winter. Anyway, what I must say is uh, thank you for listening. It's been great having you along. If you're listening to the podcast, thank you too. Uh, go online, rate, and all that stuff. And please let me know what you think of the show at Kevin Markwick on Twitter. I promise I'll tidy up the Facebook page. But I promise, I promise. I know I've been doing it for weeks, but I haven't got around to it, but I will do it. I promise. Uh, I only missed, I missed two or three tracks out tonight. Um, either doubled up ones from Paper Moon I did and... Um, um, another lucky man uh, the one film I did uh, have a section on was That'll Be The Day but I don't think that's a big loss to you because actually it was a struggle to find music from that we can cover that when we do Stardust uh, next year or the year after I don't know I just remember the girlies went mad for it particularly when it played in the double feature with um, That'll Be The Day of Stardust. Anyway, it's great having you. Uh, I'll be back next week with uh, 1974. And I'm just going to say it. Blazing Saddles. Yes! Anyway, I'll leave you with uh, Mick and the boys. Thanks for listening. I love you all. Bye.
I'ma think about you, baby. 